Welcome to Champagne Problems. We are your hosts, Robbie Shaw and Patrick Balsley. Thank you for joining us on this journey as we explore our mental health, well-being, performance, and longevity, and how our relationships with alcohol can influence each. No shame, no labeling, no judgment, just curiosity. Welcome back, Inquiring Minds. We've got a great one for you today. Wes Carter will be joining Patrick and I in the studio for a roundtable that will inspire you, educate you, and perhaps blow your mind. Wes Carter is the third generation leader of Atlantic Packaging, the largest privately owned industrial packaging company in North America. But more importantly, he has launched a new earth project, a coalition of enthusiasts, brands, and suppliers working to eliminate plastic pollution from the world's oceans, lakes, and rivers. Wes is an avid outdoorsman, a lifelong surfer, and traveler who resides between Charleston, South Carolina, and the infamous North Shore in Hawaii. Wes is also an old friend. So let's go to Wes. Wes Carter, welcome to Champagne Problems. Wonderful to be here. Thank you guys for having me. Of course. Yeah, man. Of course. It's it's our pleasure, brother. Been waiting for this one. I know. I know. It's been a long time coming, and... uh, we're excited to hear you explain why. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've been following you guys for quite a long time, and uh, I love what you're doing. And uh, you guys have got a great message out there. It's been uh, it's been wonderful to follow your progress. Well, we appreciate that. Um, I have known you for, golly, do the math. Twenty five years. Twenty five. I mean, since we were nineteen, twenty, kind of thing. Yeah. So let's dive in. So we're gonna do a series of rapid fire. Some of these are kind of fun. I'd say they're all fun. Depends on how you answer them. First one, first live music concert and where? Hall and Oates, Wilmington, <laughs> yes. North Carolina, um, at Trask Coliseum. Um, I remember Rich Girl. Rich Girl. Uh, it's a bitch yeah. girl. <laughs> I remember Rich Girl. Yeah. But yeah, Hall and Oates, man. That is fantastic. We get so such good answers in here. It's so fun to hear. When you first. say screw it, I'm going to eat something unhealthy, what is it? And now I know that it's not a potato chip. <laughs> no, it's not a potato chip. Um, you know, uh, I was in Riceville Beach this weekend, and it was a trolley-stop hot dog. I knew that was your answer. I was actually with one of my mentors who's uh, really into health and wellness as well, and I uh, even got her to eat a North Carolina dog, so uh, that was a, a big deal. But, yeah, man, I cannot re- resist a surfer dog, but – um, and and I'm a sucker for ice cream too. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah. Uh, if you this is a this is kind of a deep one to, to do on the spot. Yeah. If you could answer, excuse me. If you could know the answer to any question in the world, what would you ask? What is the most efficient way to establish balance um, with all life on this planet? Mm. That's a good one. Yeah, that's pretty. That's a good one. Uh, pretty, pretty, just, pretty solid I, off the cuff. I, I asked bro. if the Easter Bunny was real. <laughs> well, you know, I it's a lot. Of, I think it's probably yeah. informed by a lot of the work that I'm doing, where uh, I've I've really come to believe that health has to be fundamental to everything that mm-hmm. we do in life. Um, how we teach our children, uh, how we you know really relate to ourselves. Um, and also how, how we engage in the world of business, um, medicine, whatever it may be. Um, and health really, for me, has been a journey in 
learning balance. You know, what does balance mean for me um, as an individual? And also what does balance in the collective look like? And I I really think that's a lot about how we engage with the natural world um, and create systems uh, and relationships with the natural world that are collaborative and additive uh, and not extractive, which Mm. is where we've been for for, the last several hundred years at least. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite sound? <laughs> My favorite sound? <laughs> An acoustic guitar. <laughs> Love it. Acoustic guitar. Love it. All right, final one. If someone were to warn me about you, what would they say? Oh, God. <laughs> he talks a lot. That's a um, buckle up. That's good. That's, that's perfectly <laughs> good for, for our medium. Bu- buckle up. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. All right, cool. Now we, now we know Wes Carter. Um, all right, so we're going to start off with I don't want to call it obvious, but since I'm a friend of yours, I do know some of your journey. I know part of it or a lot of it includes sobriety and quitting drinking. Um, I know that's going to play a big part of this conversation. So why don't we just jump into that? I don't want to ask what was your sobriety journey and have you go down this long path. I'd love to kind of pick it apart or break it up and just initially ask, when did some lights begin to go off for you around your use? You know, I think for me, probably mid-30s, you know, uh, and I think that's actually relatively common. You know, I sort of Mm -hmm. got through, obviously, the college years where I had a big time, and then, you know, that sort of extended into my 20s, uh, sort of extended into my 20s, but then, you know, once I got into my mid-30s, I really started to understand that alcohol was doing a lot more uh, or creating a lot more negative uh, patterns in my life than it was helping anything. Um, and like most people on that path, I stayed in a state of denial for quite a while. Yep. Um, and I tried to mitigate my drinking or come up with strategies um, that I felt like, you know, proved to myself that it wasn't as problematic as mm-hmm. deep down I knew that it was. Um, and it was a long road for me, you know, those, those, you know, years in my mid to late thirties, really trying to come to terms with it and really fighting against uh, the reality that I continued to, to see was, was tough, but, um, that's really when it started for me. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that kind of progress? Um, you know, progressed like a lot of things uh, in that world where, I started having, you know, more really difficult experiences, um, you know, and I started, I think the thing that really started to bother me is I was beginning to create, I was, I was beginning to change things in my life to mitigate my drinking. So like, you know, like I wouldn't ever have meetings on Monday morning, right? you know, like stuff like that, you know, and then it was, you know, I would never go, I would never schedule a workout with a trainer on Monday or Friday, you know? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden my productivity and my week started getting really small, you know, <laughs> and instead of having five days of productivity or six, I was having two, yeah. you know, bookended with all these, uh, right. Yeah. And, you know, I've always had a really sensitive system too. And so I was constantly battling sleep and having mm-hmm. a lot of anxiety about that. And, you know, I just got to a point where, um, 
I was starting to see that this just was not tenable for me anymore. Yeah. Um, and it was a little bit, I was, I felt like I was a little bit of an enigma too, because while I was still trying to keep one foot in the world of alcohol and partying and all that, I also had another foot in the, the world of health and wellness. I mean, right. I was, you know, doing a tremendous amount of yoga at that time. And I was training to become a yoga teacher at that time. So yeah. like I was, you know, I was being pulled in the direction of health and wellness um, and I really think that was, you know, on a soul level, sort of pulling me in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the habituated um, the habituated way of living that I had had learned, um, I really had developed into an adult with that habituation. Yeah. Um, it was hard to let go of. Yeah. Um, and, um, and for the most part, it felt like I was losing something, you know. So I was trying to figure out ways to create a life where I could have both. Yeah. You know, it's... it's uh, it's interesting hearing that because it is somewhat of a commonality with people who are in the, you know, call it health and wellness world where a lot of times it becomes a, not a justification, but a reason to, or an excuse to like, well, I just ran a marathon. Yeah. Work hard, play hard. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know? exactly. Work hard, play hard. Or, you know, one of the things I would do is like, I would get really into hot yoga because that was a good way to sweat out the booze, you know? And the funny thing is you'd go to these hot yoga classes, it would smell like booze in there. It wasn't just me, you know? But even then I'm like, this is not really in alignment with my highest self. I'm using these health and wellness techniques basically to detox myself. Yeah. Um, So eventually it got to a point where I decided, you know what? Um, it's time for me to um, have an intervention and get away. And so I, I did do a 30-day treatment program. Did you? And, I didn't know um, that. Yeah, I did a 30-day Good. treatment program. Good. And um, that really helped me get a lot of perspective uh, on the the situation and gave me some tools and, and really also gave me a community. I think that was the first time I'd sort of seen, like, the possibility of having a community outside of the world of alcohol that could be really supportive. Um, and luckily for me, because I did have um, a lot of time and energy in the wellness community, um, the recovery community and the wellness community did ha- do have a lot of overlap, obviously. Yeah. So yeah. it was not that difficult for me to take the recovery community and integrate it into uh, where I was already you know, operating. What did that look like for like the first like little bit for you? You know, um, for the first little bit, I mean, I'll acknowledge it was kind of lonely. You know, yeah. for for the first little bit, I felt and like boring and boring, <laughs> and you know, embarrassing. I think was there, you know, because I didn't want a lot of people to know. I didn't want my friends to know. You know, I wanted to create all these narratives about why it wasn't about Wes has a drinking problem. It was mm-hmm. Wes is taking a break or whatever else it may be. Um, but. Um, that all really started to change for me once I found medicine. You yeah. know, that That's when the narrative really started to change because the medicine started to help me understand that I was not giving anything up. What I was what I was gaining was far greater than what I perceived I was giving it's up. Been losing, yeah. And that has been, especially over the last several years, and I will acknowledge, like, this was not a straight line for me. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's true for a lot of people, and I, I like to say, like, the path of healing, it zigzags, and it crosses back yeah. on top of itself. No question. Anyone who tells you it's a straight-line trajectory has never walked the path. <laughs> right. The path is full of boulders and holes and rocks. and <laughs> There uh, is no path. Yeah, there <laughs> is no path, exactly. But, you know, in, in, in looking back over the last five or six years for me, I certainly see that the entire time there was a forward momentum. 
yeah. you know, even when there were setbacks. And I, you know, I had some relapses at times and had to pick myself back up and get started again. But, Hell yeah. Um, Part of the deal. But the, I, I think the, the real shift for me was when I began to see and understand what a life of sobriety offered me um, and, and how I could show up in the world differently. You know, and it, I felt like I started to understand how to really become the human being that I'd always wanted to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sobriety and, and abstaining from alcohol was just the first step mm-hmm. in many, many steps of, of healing um, that allowed me to continue to progress. And I'm still on that path. I mean, it's a lifelong mission. I, I also don't think you ever land in a place of healed. Right. Uh, but certainly we get closer and closer to a place of integration. Today's episode is sponsored by Athletic Brewing Company, America's leading non-alcoholic craft brewer. Have you been thinking about cutting back on alcohol but still aren't sure if near beers are for you? Check out Athletic Brewing, the most decorated non-alcoholic brewer in the world. Athletic produces a wide selection of great tasting brews, including IPAs, Goldens, Darks, Lights, Sours, and more. Their non-alcoholic beers have won over 70 awards and are fit for all time, so you can drink them anytime and anywhere. Now you can enjoy great-tasting craft brews all night long and still be ready for whatever life throws at you tomorrow. Right now, new Athletic customers can receive 20% off their first order when they visit athleticbrewing.com and use the code CP20 at checkout by August 31st, 2023. So... You segue to touch in there with the medicine. Let's dive in. Sure. Tell us what the medicine is. You know, uh, plant medicine is kind of everywhere these days mm-hmm. um, in the world of health and wellness. Um, it's, it's certainly coming out of the shadows, which I think is a really positive thing. Um, I did not go in search of uh, plant medicine, psychedelic plant medicine, to solve my um, alcohol issues. It, mm-hmm. um, Looking back, it seems very... Um, uh, almost synchronistic that it came into my life when it did. Um, but I really, uh, was just curious, you know, Mm -hmm. and I had a few really close friends who had gotten involved in that community. And one of them in particular came up to me one day and said, Hey Wes, I have found something that you're going to (laughs) like. Um, and I was like, well, what is it? He's like, well, I met God. Like you met God. Okay. Um, well, I like that. I'm interested in that. Um, so, uh, I'd like to meet God. I'd like to meet God. And so, yeah, I, um, I decided to um, to dip my toe in, and um, and it was radical for me from the very beginning. You know, um, it it opened me up to dimensions of myself um, that I had no idea even existed. Mm. Um, the the idea of spirituality took on a whole nother meaning. Um, the idea of of spiritual and emotional healing took on a whole nother meaning, and I think that was probably the biggest breakthrough for me. In the first few months and year when I was starting to have, do these ceremonies, um, I all of a sudden started to understand that spiritual and emotional healing was actually a real thing. Mm. Like, I was actually experiencing yeah. that shift, and so it was no longer this thing that therapists talked about or, you know, you read in a book or that the Dalai Lama talked about. Like, right. I'm actually experiencing places in me that used to hurt and used to inform me in a, in a certain way that, that are quieter now, you hmm. know? And, um, so I have, um, I've continued on that path to this very day and, um, and it informs a lot of who I am. 
Mm. How did it start? Mm-hmm. Can like will you go into a little bit of detail like about how like that first experience or that first process and what it looked like? Can yeah. You... Um so the first process I went to a retreat center. Okay. Um and it was a professional retreat center that uh, there were facilitators there that specialized in uh, plant medicine. Um, the first few treatments I did were with psilocybin, okay. which is the uh, active uh, ingredient in, in magic mushrooms. Um, and so you would go to these retreat centers, um, and they're very nice, um, and would meet with the facilitators. You would set intentions like, hey, here are the things I'm struggling with. Yeah. Um, and that was typically the very first part is, there are certain ways I'm showing up in the world that I'm not really proud of, or there's a part of me that feels uh, insecure or broken or whatever it may be, and I'd really like to find healing around that. And so there's this whole process of setting intentions, and then when you arrive at the treats, retreat center and you go through those with the facilitators, and then the ceremony happens where you take the medicine. Um, typically, you're laying in a bed with eye shades on and headphones on that's playing music, um, one of the reasons that you put eye shades on is so you can go in. Mm-hmm. So mm. for people who've ever taken psychedelics, like at a concert or something, that's yeah. a very different experience. Mm-hmm. So I talked to a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, I've done some of that before. Not well, like this. <laughs> not like this. When you put eye shades on, you really go inside. And so during those experiences, um, sometimes it was showing me, like as an example, one of the things it showed me was something that happened to me when I was really young. And it's sort of, it's almost like being in a dream, you know? So like Mm -hmm. you're in like a dream state almost. And I saw something that happened to me with that sort of remembered from when I was seven or eight years old, but not nearly as acutely as it showed me. Mm -hmm. And then it showed me that that trauma that happened to me created a narrative inside of me that said, there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Because at that age, when that happened to me, I didn't have the capability to understand that it was not about me. You know, children tend to internalize things like that. So I internalize it. And then what it showed me in that experience is that narrative informed you your whole life up until this point. And it showed me like when I was 12 years old, how it informed me. And when I was a teenager and in my twenties, and at the end of the day, that trauma continued to say, you're not good enough and you're broken. Mm. And so like, but then it also showed me that Wes, that was always a lie. That was never true. And that was really liberating for me because I was like, wow, maybe I'm not an insecure person. I've felt that way my whole life. But this just showed me that all of that insecurity was tied to this event that happened to you when you were really young. And so from then on, I was pretty well sold. So um, I can, you know, in all of these type, you know, it's not all trauma healing. Some of it was, you know, showing me, you know, uh, much larger, you know, meta type concepts about, uh, the nature of creation and things like that. But uh, but a lot of the early work was going deep into my own traumas, insecurities, and, and finding healing around those. When those insights come during that process for you, mm-hmm. was it like an emotional insight? Because like, I, I feel like when I hear people talk about this stuff, and I, I don't have any ex- personal experience with it. I mean, I do post, I mean, I mean pre-sobriety, like, but like sure. it wasn't like you're talking about there was no intention but when you have those insights when i think of like the normal like therapeutic process a lot of those insights kind of come about mentally like cognitively it's like okay well i understand this but from what i hear you saying it's like a deeper more 
like kind of mind body connection emotional insight sure is that accurate yeah i mean it it is a it is a mind body spirit experience now it, it does depend there are certain experiences with medicine where it's all very uh, cognitive it's all like insights okay. like you may not be seeing visions and things like yeah. that you're just having insights about yourself Others are very visual, and some of that depends on the medicine as well. Yeah. You know, different types of medicine are going to give you different experiences. Yeah. Um, so, but I think the the thing that I've appreciated about it so much is that it gets to the root of a lot of these issues. So, as opposed to me just getting to a place where I'm trying to overcome feeling a certain way, it's it's much more diagnostic. It's going to go in and show you the root of where a lot of these things originated. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that, including us, all of the listeners of this podcast are thinking right now, all right, how do I apply this to myself and what would this look like for myself based on their entire identity and everything that we've kind of already talked about as far as you know, life events that lead up to who we are at this moment. So it sounds like, and, and this is a personal curiosity, but you know, you and I have talked about this and, and, and how I'm obviously very interested in it. I'm scared to death. <laughs> That's a natural reaction. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it is. It's like there are things inside of me that I, you know, call it survival, avoid. And, and this process and this experience is going to go straight to that, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. There right? you know there you <laughs> we call it the warrior's path. Yeah. And, you know... Um, one of my favorite quotes, um, I think it's Joseph Campbell said, you know, the, the cave you fear holds the treasure you seek. And that is really what this work is about. Yeah. I mean, it, there is a level of courage that it requires, and you do have to walk into those caves, you mm. know. But what I have seen is the fear of the fear is always a lot greater than the actual thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, like once you get in there, you know, like the medicine is not trying to scare you. It is, it is trying to help you conquer your fears more than anything else, but it does require participation. And that's mm -hmm. the other thing I tell people, like, this is not a magic pill. It's not that much different than doing like IFS, you know, if you're going to, yeah. you know, or parts yeah. work, gotta go you know, yeah. you got to go deep. It's like sitting with a therapist, but you've got a catalyst mm -hmm. that is going to help you get to layers of yourself that are really difficult to get to otherwise, because one of the things this work does is it bypasses your thinking mind. Mm. And so one of the, before I did medicine, I did some therapy um, and I would always struggle to get past my mind. Yeah. You know, I'd stay trapped in my mind, but because these medicines work on different planes, you bypass your mind and get to the root and core of a lot of these things. And then the integration process can be uh, more impactful. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a little bit about doing, a, doing some EMDR and some of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and a lot of times I can't get there. And, and, and it's exactly what you're talking about. There's something like one time I had to turn the camera, I was doing it over Zoom and I had to turn the camera off because I was feeling the judgment of me going into an emotional state mm -hmm. by this therapist. 
It's like, I don't want her to see me cry. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, just whatever block I had wouldn't allow me to get there. Right. And when you're in an altered state with these medicines, like that's part of what they're available for is to help us heal our minds, mm. you know, because most of the dysfunction that I found in my life, including addictive patterns, yeah. it's all a sickness of the mind, Yeah, you know, and so finding ways to heal our minds so we can honestly not be slaves to our minds where we yeah. can show up more from a heart space. And, you know, over years of being in this work, and I guess I've been doing this work for five or six years now, that has been one of the most powerful parts is really this idea of returning to a state of love. Uh, I think Rumi has a quote that says something like, your task is not to seek love. Your task is to remove all the barriers that you've built between you and love. And I love that quote because that's really what this process has felt like. As I did this healing work, as I took medicine, as I did the integration work, and the integration work's really important, all of, I, I never had to find connection. I never had to look for compassion and empathy and inspiration and purpose. It was all just sitting there. It was just blocked by all of these traumas and, you know, conditioned ways of thinking and insecurities. Um, and honestly, from a, from a spiritual perspective, feeling like you're connected to something greater, when, when all those barriers are removed and love is what is sitting there, there was nothing more confirming for me than the nature of, of life, the nature of existence, like being foundationally really good, mm. you know, and, and, the, and a, the purpose for living really being about how do we, how do we work on ourselves to a point where we can give and receive love, uh, more, um, you know, more fully. Dude, this is wild. Uh, I've literally, I started like, I'm trying to market my counseling practice a little bit more. I just kind of started over the last two weeks and putting up these quotes on my thing. I've literally done three of them and two of them were the Joseph Campbell quote <laughs> and the Rumi quote. <laughs> Synchronicities. That's what I'm telling you, man. That, the medicine's that, talking that's, to that's, me. That's good, saying, that's man. good medicine, oh, man. Oh, God. That's good talking medicine. to me, man. That's yeah. good. Well, it, you know, as wild as that sounds, those kind of, quote, coincidences, Dude. I mean, we call them synchronicities yeah. in the world of medicine, yeah. become so commonplace. And to me, what I try to interpret those synchronicities is the universe saying yes, uh -huh. yes, oh, yeah. keep moving in that direction. Yeah. Mm. You know, there's, mm. there's signs all over the place. But, you know, again, when we're trapped in our minds, you know, we, we miss those signs, yeah. you know. And so it's, it's really block. about, you know, slowing down. Um, and finding a way to really be present uh, with yourself primarily, um, and then just listening to the rhythms of, of life, the rhythms of nature. And, uh, and that's really guided me in my personal life and my professional life where I don't have this deep, like striving and grasping to do and accomplish. You know, I let life flow so yeah. much more easily, but that has been a product of this medicine work that has removed so much of that static that I carried for so long. Yeah. Give us a little understand, if you would, give us a little understanding around, you know, I think a lot of people that are listening to this who don't have much information or, or education around this think, 
Um, you know, you do this retreat, you go under the influence of, of the medicine, and then, you know, what happens after that? Sure. And, 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 and I know you know what I'm talking about, but just to, just to clarify, often in our civilian world, when we, when we go into a mind-altered state, it kind of remains as an experience over here, and it doesn't necessarily leak over or, or yeah. trickle into our, our lives, um, you know, off of that substance or whatever, specifically alcohol. Sure. You know, we can have these grand ideas and these incredible thoughts and I can even go deep with alcohol. And then when the alcohol wears off, I I don't necessarily remember it or it didn't affect me, you know, going forward where I hear the very opposite about these kinds of uh, experiences where they trickle over into real world. Sure. Maybe start with like the, the immediate like integration process that follows the So typically during the ceremony, um, I always have a voice recorder, you know, so as things are coming up, you know, I'm picking up my phone and being like, all right, this is what I'm seeing. You know, like I'm three years old and this is going on in my house or, you know, or it's showing me something from, I mean, one time I had an experience, this is pretty wild, but it showed me the trauma that my grandfather went through in World War II. Yeah. And it showed me how at 18, and then it, then it really showed me the trauma of all of the men of that generation who were over in Europe or in Japan. And like, it was getting me to understand the gravity of what that did to a society to mm. have that many 18 and 19 year old men that traumatized and coming back into a world with no tools, yeah. no medicine, Everything no, no real therapy. And then it showed me how that impacted their children yeah. and how that impacted their grandchildren, which was me, us. which is all right. of us, <laughs> right. you know? And so like, like, I mean, my hair stands up yeah, just talking yeah, about dude. like, that I'm was radical is. for me. And all of a sudden, you know, on a, one lesson I got was, wow, we really don't understand the impact of war and we don't talk about it the way we should. You know, if we thought that every time we sent a soldier to war, it was going to impact their grandchildren, you know, I think we think twice, you know, and so there's some big moments like that. But back to your question, I get off on a tangent. No, no, no. Start talking about medicine, start rolling. But so, so I'll take all that. And then, you know, sometimes, I mean, I talk a lot. So sometimes I would have four and a half hours of me just babbling and babbling and babbling. And so then a lot of the process was going back, usually more like a week later, like giving some time for the experience to settle. Because the day after, it's not like alcohol. You're not going to have a hangover, but you are going to feel a little discombobulated. And so you're going to want to rest and take it easy, drink a lot of water, those kind of things. Um with most medicines, though, within 48 hours, you're going to feel way better than you did when you took before you took the medicine because part of what you are doing in that process is purging. Mm. You know, you're, you're purging not only toxins from your system, which is a physical purge. You know, you hear people like, you know, throwing up when they're in ceremony or sweating or whatever it may be. Like, that absolutely happens. The feeling of and the healing. People are like, oh, I don't <laughs> want to do medicine because I don't want to throw up. Yes, you do. Throwing up is actually awesome. You're getting stuff out of your body. Yeah. The medicine is is extricating stuff out of your body that you're not going to be able to get out any other way. So hmm. after about a day of kind of recovery, you'll start to feel lighter and brighter and more insights and happier. And then I'll go back and listen to the things that I talked about in ceremony and write it all down, you know. And from there, then typically I will either talk to, I have a spiritual mentor who I speak with pretty regularly who's a medicine person who's been in this work for 30 years. 
Um, but I also have a therapist who knows I'm yeah. in this work and I'll sit down with her and be like, you know what? This deal came up for me. I saw something when I was really young and she's like, do you want to do some IFS around what came up in medicine? I'm like, yeah, mm. let's, let's go address three-year-old Wes or eight-year-old Wes. Cause I saw something about him and that experience that I did not understand. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden that IFS work takes on a whole nother dimension. Yep. You know, like I have much greater access to that eight-year-old wounded part of me mm-hmm. and I can have a conversation with him and all of a sudden he starts talking back and he's telling me this is what I need and mainly what they need is to be understood yeah. you know and so like I am a big believer in that type of work with a spiritual mentor a therapist I love EMDR you mentioned EMDR <laughs> EMDR I think works on the same plain as medicine because I've had some experiences in EMDR that was very medicine-esque but what I've seen it really is is a massive catalyst for doing a lot of this work um, when you're trying to integrate these wounded parts of yourself have you ever thought about like integrating the like your IFS therapist like in a ceremony with you and doing IFS work in ceremony yeah I've done that okay (laughs) (laughs) I've done that not only thought about it yeah Anybody who's been in any of this type of work understands pretty quickly is you got to get to the inner child stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The inner child stuff, as you're developing, things happen to you. You're not old enough or mature enough to be able to handle those in an emotionally sophisticated way. You internalize those traumas as something's wrong with me. Yeah. And then you carry those narratives through the rest of your life. And all the energy gets repressed. All the energy gets yeah. repressed. And so I have found radical healing by incorporating modern psychotherapy with medicine. And I really believe that is the future of psychotherapy. I don't believe it's one or the other. And I certainly think there's a lot of people that don't necessarily need medicine. But what I have seen, when when you coordinate ancient plant medicine, and let's talk about that, it has been here for millennia. I mean, this medicine is on this planet for a purpose, I do believe. And when you incorporate that ancient spiritual medicine with modern psychotherapy, there is tremendous magic that can happen. And I am, I'm living proof of it. It's radically changed my life in, in more positive ways than I can express, but it hasn't been easy. You know, it 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 has been, it has been a tremendous journey for me. Um, But I talk about it openly now. And the reason I'm sitting with you guys is because I believe that this type of work can liberate humanity. I, mm. I, I, I believe it's the most powerful work there is. And when you're looking at the problems that face our planet right now, I don't see how we solve them unless we heal the human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so focusing on the most efficient way to heal human beings, to me, should be the, should be at the top of the list of what we're talking about yeah. as, as, a, as a global culture. Yeah. When did you get go? When did you have the shift from like doing your work to it shifting into okay, now it's time for me to move into more of a leadership role in this type of mission? So I would. Was that a was that like a direct <laughs> directive? No, it or, wasn't a directive. Uh, um, and the medicine doesn't really work in directives. It, sh- it certainly gives suggestions, um, yeah, strong okay. suggestions yeah, yeah. at times. But no, I um, the medicine that really changed my life um, was iboga. Um, and iboga is not a very well-known medicine in the West. Um, it is the, the root of, of a tree in Africa, the iboga tree. 
uh, that's grown in the jungles of Gabon, uh, West yeah. Africa. And that medicine came into my life. It is considered one of the more advanced medicines. It's typically it's, not a place you start. It's one of the ingredients of ayahuasca, right? Nope. It, no, ayahuasca no, is South American medicine. Um, ayahuasca is actually two different plants. Yeah. Um, that are mixed together. Um, so these are different medic- medicines, but they would be considered on the same level okay. from a, uh, you know, from being being bigger medicines. Yeah. Um, but um, you hear a lot about iboga and ibogaine in the world of recovery because of all the plant medicines that we know about, nothing is more detoxifying than iboga, and so it's used a lot. Um, in treating addiction, you know, when you need to detox someone from alcohol or heroin or pills or whatever it may be. Um, there's actually a documentary out uh, that some friends of mine made a few years ago called Dosed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole documentary is uh, my friends facilitating a woman in Vancouver who struggled with uh, heroin addiction all her whole adult life and them detoxing her using iboga. Um, so honestly, what brought me to iboga was alcohol. You know, I was tired of relapsing. Mm. I was like this, you know, and I was like, I was like, I will do. And the promise of Iboga was like, I could get all this addictive stuff out of my system. You know, yeah. like that's what I'd read about. And I was like, I was a little afraid of it, but I was like, you know what? I can handle a week of anything. If it means this can stop, yeah, I got to yeah. stop this pattern, you know? Yeah. And so when was that? How long ago was that? This was almost three years ago. Okay. And so I went and took Iboga uh, at a retreat center in Central America and it was radical for me. I mean, <laughs> tell I us mean, about it, Wes. It was radical for me. I mean, I I had an experience that, you know, I like to say, like, I left faith in the rearview mirror a long time ago. Like, the, the you know, God was so present and, and the beauty and the just the, the, I just saw the nature of reality and creation and how incredible it is to be alive, you know, like the gift of Mm. life was just overwhelming to me. Um, And through that experience, it was really showing me my path. And in that experience, it said, you need to go to Africa and be initiated um, with the African people that have carried this medicine for eons. Um, And so the, the, the culture around that medicine is Bwiti, uh, Bwiti is a, a, a group of, of African people who've carried this medicine for thousands of years. And Bwiti is not a religion. Uh, it's more of a philosophy. They call it the study of life. Um, so the medicine was really forward with me that I needed to go to Africa. So I hopped on an airplane a few Highly weeks later. suggestive. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and I went and, and sat through a, an initiation, which in, the, in, in Westworld, we don't think a lot about initiation. Uh, but most indigenous cultures around the world all have an initiation and rite of passage for men and women um, that happens when, you know, yeah. kids are in their teenage years. Mm. Um, and even though I went through mine at 40, whatever, 41 years old, that really, um, and it was not why I was going. I, I don't want to put it like that. On the backside of that, there was just this understanding that part of what I needed to do with my life was make medicine accessible to people, um, you know, tell my story and make it, you know, for the people that were interested, give them a pathway um, to, to finding healing. 
Um, and so that's why I'm sitting here with you guys. I mean, you know, yeah. I wouldn't have sat here a year ago, you know, but it's taken me um, a long time to get to a place where I, I wanted to share this with the world, you know, and, and at least in, in my in my little world. And um, I do believe that that this medicine can um, liberate humans on a level that nothing else can. And um, I'm, I'm just a regular person. <laughs> I am a regular person that had a lot of struggles like anybody else and found a path that delivered radical healing for me. And um, like, just like you guys, you know, you, you, when you find healing and you, and you find something this, this special, you want to share it with people yeah. um, and make it accessible. And so that's what I've worked to do over the last several years. Mm. God. God, 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 I guess I got to go do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's shift a little bit um, because I think that's a perfect segue into what you're doing. We talk about this all the time. It's like, oh, we got to go do it. Um, let's shift into what you're doing now. Um, aside from what you just talked about as far as, you know, being a leader and kind of making the, the medicine more accessible or more, more uh, aware, let's talk about a New Earth project. Sure. Yeah, I know, it's, it's, I know you want us, so let's do it. Yeah, you, you bring up my two favorite subjects, medicine and, and sustainability. But as I mentioned, when we first got started, you know, the outdoors has been a the backdrop of my life. You know, I grew up in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina with sand and salt water. I've been a lifelong surfer. I've been a lifelong fisherman. Um, I got really interested in the mountains when I was, you know, in my college years. I did the Knowles course. I hiked the Appalachian Trail. Um, and then when I got out of college, um, after traveling around out West, all the national parks, I lived in park city, uh, where I worked at a ski shop, you know, selling skis and snowboards. And so I've just always loved the outdoors. Um, and I never really saw that my passion for the outdoors and my professional life had any real intersection, you mm. know? Um, and I'll, on some level, I left a lot of that stuff behind as I got into my professional world, but, um, one of the things about this work, uh, the medicine work and the integration work, as I mentioned earlier, it just started to reveal to me how sacred life was. Mm. You know, I'll never forget one time I asked, what is the meaning of life? And it started laughing. It said, life. Life is the <laughs> meaning of life. Living is Being the meaning alive. of life. And I never forget one insight that I had where <laughs> I came to realize that we are nature. We're not something separate from it. You know, okay. we are connected to all living things. And so all of a sudden, once I started to have that insight, taking care of natural resources and biodiversity and trying to be in harmony with the planet just was incredibly obvious. Mm. You know, like, it, again, like, what <laughs> like, something what I had to look for? I'm like, duh. <laughs> you know, and so I am fortunate to have been born into a third-generation family business that was yeah. started by my grandfather, W. Horace Carter, in 1946. Um, our business, uh, my grandfather won a Pulitzer Prize uh, for meritorious public service in 1952 mm -hmm. um, for fighting the Ku Klux Klan with his newspaper. Oh, that was wow. really the foundations of our company. Wow. There's a, uh, there's a PBS documentary called The Editor and the Dragon that's all about his campaign against the Klan. But we started as a weekly newspaper. That's he used so that newspaper to fight the Klan. Because of his work, over 300 Klansmen were arrested, um, including the Grand Dragon of the Carolinas Ku Klux Klan. And, and it, like I said, he won a Pulitzer. And that really started our company back in 1946. So I like to say, you know, um, the, the, the ethics and the, the morality of our organization <laughs> 
really began with his campaign. And, wow. and so um, I like to believe that with the New Earth Project, we're channeling a lot of that same energy today. But um, for me, like I said, I got born into this company. Um, today, we're the largest privately held packaging company in North America. We service large consumer products companies and retail brands of all shapes and sizes in pretty much every industry vertical food, beverage, building products, medical, e-commerce, if it's being manufactured, the likelihood is that we touch it. Mm. And so what I started to see through this work over the last five or six years is I had a seat at the table with the largest organizations in the world and that I also had this great passion for the outdoors and that we could use the influence of our organization to help facilitate a transition to sustainable packaging, to healthier packaging, to more circular packaging. And it was really like showing me in honor of life, like use your platform, use this platform that your family has built over generations to do something truly good for the world and to really influence positive change in the direction of health, Mm -hmm. in the direction of healthy life. And so once I started to see that, um, I just fundamentally believe that that was actually maybe the purpose of our organization. Maybe that was the, the whole reason for it being from, you know, uh, for all these last uh, almost 80 years. And we had, we had already built a really sophisticated organization that had a great reputation in the marketplace. And so I committed uh, the energy of our organization to being dedicated to sustainable packaging. You know, I wanted to work with the largest consumer products companies in the world and inform them, influence them, and help them with this transition. And so a New Earth Project um, was an idea uh, that we came up with. Um, There were some people in my world that were aware that I was really passionate about sustainability, that I was speaking out in our industry about the need to change Um, One of the things that had informed me a lot was being a surfer and traveling around the world, things like plastic pollution. Mm -hmm. Like I was seeing that myself. I was seeing that up close and personal. And I had this realization that like, you know, we're a part of the supply chain that's creating all these problems. And if the supply chain doesn't shift, there's not enough beach sweeps in the universe to clean up this mess at the rate that it's happening. Um, Packaging is, is really what it all is, right? Correct. So like that was a big moment for me. I was actually in Indonesia when I was 40 years on a surfing trip. And like the realization that most of the plastic floating in the ocean is packaging. Packaging. It wasn't all packaging Mm -hmm. that I sell, but it was, it's the supply chain that I'm a part of, Mm -hmm. you know? And what I saw primarily in our industry was this um, intentional blind spot, you know, like no one was really talking about it. You know, yeah, there's a problem with plastic pollution, but the supply chain that was creating the problems was not really acknowledging it, mm-hmm. you know, and certainly we weren't innovating and in designing packaging to address the problem, you know, where I, I really saw an opportunity. So um, I wanted to, I wanted to start an initiative that would be a way to market sustainable packaging as something exciting, as something sexy, you know, as something that <laughs> the supply chain could embrace and want to do. Like, let's not do this because we feel like we have to. Let's begin to take the organizations that we work for, integrate our ethics as human beings and our reverence for life, and integrate that into the culture of our organizations Mm -hmm. and commit to these changes and celebrate it. 
This can be our moon landing. If we can transition the supply chain away from all these problems to a healthier future, it changes the trajectory of the planet for generations. And I really saw that we were at a pivot point and our organization was sort of sitting here in the belly of the beast. I mean, we're, we're, we have the ability to make these significant changes. And so um, a friend of mine connected me with Peter King, who is a, a surfing photographer on the North shore. Um, we felt like surfing was a great um, vehicle for this message as a surfer myself. And as my friend Kelly Slater likes to say, you know, surfers are the canaries of the ocean. You know, we see all these problems firsthand, especially when it relates to plastic pollution. And so a new earth project was, uh, our, as a packaging company, our embrace of the surfing vertical and saying, we're going to use Atlantic sophistication to help the surfing industry transition to a sustainable future, create new packaging, uh, for, for surfboards and for apparel, um, and then we're going to tell really beautiful stories along the way. So uh, we created a documentary series last year called Journey to a New Earth that really documented that transition uh, for several surfing brands, but with the ultimate goal of influencing all types of, of, of brands and companies to make this shift. So um, I just finished reading Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth, and that's where the name came from. That one. book blew my freaking mind. <laughs> yeah. um, but um But yeah, a New Earth Project really is an initiative that resides within Atlantic Packaging that is a celebration of sustainability, of circularity, um, and uh, and really honoring that we as uh, organizations in the supply chain have an inherent responsibility to be much more conscious of the products that we're putting out into the world. Mm. You you feel like you're gaining some traction? I I mean, like some partnerships with other, you know, people in your industry? Do you... No, I absolutely do. I think um, one of the things that's been so surprising to me is how much people have responded. Yeah. You know, I think when you look when you look out in the world today, you know, younger people have a real passion for this. They know it's true. They know it's true. Yeah. And a lot of the organizations that we call on, the people that I call on are younger than me. Um, you know, and so good. the culture is shifting in that direction. And I think a new earth has really shown people what's possible. Like, oh, wow, this can be fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this can be we really can actually awesome, actually. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that's been really powerful is getting really influ- influential athletes like Kelly Slater and yeah. Kai Lenny and Carissa Moore and saying, hey, would you guys embrace this and be our spokespeople and advocate for sustainability? Oh, yeah. Nobody in our industry ever thought about branding packaging, you know, especially the kind of packaging that we sell, which is more tertiary packaging. But with a New Earth Project, that's exactly what we've done. And so now we have many companies in our space that are asking to collaborate, uh, to innovate new products. Uh, We just announced a partnership with a company called Cruise Foam uh, out of Santa Cruz, California. They are making foam like EPS and EPE foam replacement from shrimp shells. Um, It's a really sexy product. And, you know, again, sustainability is the catalyst for innovating that product. And so we'll bring that to market really soon. And um, we we, we just see tremendous progress, uh, especially on the backside of COVID. There's just this renewed sense that we've got to do better. Yeah. Mm. So, all right. So a couple my mind's racing here because this is just fascinating. Um, I'm going to try to ask two questions in one. But one is is – Obviously, from a business standpoint, it, you're a packaging company, so you've got to go out to consumer products and take, get their business. Correct. Right? That's what you do. And so you're saying that that's going well. People are making the shift from 
shitty packaging to sustainable packaging. More and more. More and more. Yeah. And again, a lot of that is because so much packaging ends up at your house. And mm. all of us are judging brands today ethically more and more on their packaging. Like if you get a package that shows up and there's way too much packaging <laughs> or it's a ton of single use plastic, world citizens, all, you know, Americans, Europeans all over the world are saying, is this really necessary? Is this recyclable? And the retail brands in particular understand that that transition is, is happening. Catching fire. So, yeah. you know, the, that that's really been the biggest shift quite honestly is consumers demanding sustainability. And so I, to everyone who's listening, that is the real um, the real catalyst that we need people to activate is, you know, as, as, as consumers, we have to demand sustainable solutions and the supply chain will respond. But what we've done with Atlantic is say, we are here as an organization to help you with that transition uh, because the desire to make those moves um, is becoming um, more, uh, more activated every day. And then the second question is with a new earth project, obviously uh, you've explained what it, what it's doing inside of the industry. What about cleanup? So I, I do, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I like to talk about the four quadrants of health as it relates to what we're doing with sustainability. And one of those quadrants is the cleanup efforts. Um, certainly, uh, I believe that in order to uh, solve a lot of these really big problems, it does take both. You got to transition the supply chain away from these problematic materials so we don't keep putting, as an example, plastic in the ocean. But we also have a terrible mess out there right now, oceans, lakes, rivers. And so what we've tried to do is partner with a lot of other organizations that are doing a lot of the cleanup work. Um, one of my favorites is actually the ocean cleanup. Uh, Boy and Slat um, is a child prodigy. He's not a child anymore, but when he came up with this idea, he was a teenager um, based in the Netherlands. And these guys have developed technology um, that's not only pulling plastic out of the garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean, but my favorite technology actually is what they're doing in rivers. Uh, they've developed this uh, uh, th these ships that they put at the mouth of a river called an interceptor. And as plastic flows down those rivers, it captures it puts it into dumpsters on the back of this ship before it gets into the ocean. 80% um, of the plastic that ends up in the ocean comes from 1,000 rivers around the world. Wow. So their goal is to put an interceptor in every single one of those rivers. Uh, most of those rivers are in third world countries. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But we did put the first ever, or they put the first ever interceptor in the United States uh, a few months back in Los Angeles in Bayona Creek. Mm. Uh, not because it was one of the 1,000 rivers, but because... Um, because they wanted to have a, a showcase here in the United States um, for their technology. Um, and um, it's been really impactful. Uh, but again, uh, organizations like that are doing really great work. I also am really close with a, a nonprofit, Wild Aid, uh, and they're really focused on, on these cleanup efforts and protecting biodiversity of apex predators around the world. So um, as part of Atlantic's mission and a New Earth's mission, our philanthropic support of organizations that are in alignment with our greater mission is a huge part of what we're doing. And that part's been super fun too. I mean, collaborating with these big organizations all over the world. who have a passion for all of this. And, and I think for them too, it's been enlightening because they never really thought of partnering with a packaging company, but they're like, Oh, we get it. Y'all we're going to yeah. clean up the mess and you guys are going to turn off the tap. Yeah. And so yeah. like, th that's really the, the, the one, two punch. And then if there is a third leg of the stool, the third leg would be activating 
influencers, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the, the athletes, movie stars, know. musicians. That's really where I think this has to go, where you have the most prolific voices in our culture that are speaking out in support of these initiatives. To the consumer. To the consumers, you know, because we've got to make sustainability really engaging and sexy and something that people absolutely demand. Um, And we're so connected with social media, really activating those platforms uh, with influencers, uh, I think is the the third leg of that stool. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That was phenomenal, dude. Thank you so much. Get, give us your th- like three favorite things that removing alcohol from your life has given you. Oh, man. My three favorite three. things. Three out of 4,000. Number one, it, it, it has allowed me to fall in love with life. You know, like I most days experience immense joy in my life, you know, um, and that was not true for a really long time. Um, and again, it wasn't just removing alcohol. That was the first step. Um, but I do believe it's really, really difficult um, to, to love your life if you're putting alcohol in your body every day. Um, it was true for me. So um, that's been a big one for me. Um, number two, and these are not ranked in order because I can't rank yeah, them in order. Yeah, yeah. I'm such a better parent. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, like I when I was drinking, being a parent was really hard, you know, like I struggled with that a lot, you know, and I found it overwhelming. Now I I love building those relationships with my kids and I can show up for my kids so well. Mm -hmm. I'm always present for my kids or almost always present for my kids. And, um, and I love being able to help them experience the world. And I love being able to be an example for my kids about what it means to live a healthy life and live in balance and I watch them develop with this sense of safety and harmony that I know is a reflection of our household. Yeah. You mm. know, and that to me, having an alcohol free household that's also focused on loving your children really intensely, being really affectionate, and, um, and providing a safe environment where the kids can feel free to be themselves and express themselves. Like, I have a deep understanding, especially through the medicine work, of how incredibly important that is for the development of healthy human beings. And being able to witness that and, and help facilitate that in my own home has been so beautiful. Mm. Um, wow. And then, you know, thirdly, um, it's helped me found my purpose in life. You know, like my purpose in life with alcohol was just finding a way to not feel like shit all the time. Mm-hmm. Like that was basically my purpose in life yeah. is trying to manage not feeling well. Um, now, um, I get to integrate my personal passions, um, and all the things I love about being alive into what I do every day, just like you guys are doing. And when you find purpose in your life, man, the joy is just immense. And I think the beautiful thing is I didn't have to look for it. I just had to, like Rumi says, I just had to remove those barriers. And for me, there was no bigger barrier to engaging in life than alcohol, you know? And yeah. once that barrier was gone, the possibilities just started to show up. And now I can engage in those possibilities. And um, I get to walk through the world without um, a lot of fear. You know, I yeah. walk through the world without a lot of worry about, 
you know, what's going to happen, you know, tomorrow or the next day. I have a, a level of confidence and faith uh, in my path. Um, so I don't know a long answer to your question, no. but it's Perfect. it's given me everything. Yeah. There was a moment when you were speaking about your life when you were drinking and how it was very conflicted with everything else you wanted to do in life. Yeah. And so there was this Wes over here that was just butting heads with this other Wes. And this Wes over here obviously won out, but it's going to apply to the answer to this question. And if you can answer this question from this Wes over here's perspective, not so much the West today. The question is, Wes Carter, why do you care? It comes from, it comes from the heart. <laughs> you know, there, I had the realization that the way to fulfillment, uh, success, happiness, was I had to follow my heart, you know, and my heart has always pulled me in the direction of health and connection um, and beauty, you know, and I try to remember that every single day. And as I harmonize with those things in my life, what I get back in return is a radical amount of joy, you know, and there literally is not a day that I don't say thank you. There is not a day that I am just not radically grateful for the opportunity to just be alive, mm. to build relationships, to tell my story, to help other people find pathways to healing. Like, you know, it it's a confirmation to me of the existence of a beautiful, loving God that cares deeply about the healing of the human heart. I, I truly think that's really why we're here is to learn you know, like I don't, I don't believe in judgment. I think this is this experience of being a human being is really about learning how to return to a place of love, how to give love more freely, how to receive love more freely, how to build relationships um, with with other human beings, with yourself, um, with life, with creation, and you know, caring, man. I don't even know how not to care anymore. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's such a natural <laughs> place of being. And, and again, it, it comes from a place deep inside of me that is not unique to me. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a place that's deep inside of all of us. And, you know, I, I do believe there's a, you know, a bit of a collective human heart that's all driving in the, us in this direction. And um, it's what keeps me going. And it doesn't mean that there's not challenges. I still have challenges, but I, I tend to face those challenges as opportunities to learn now. Um, instead of, oh shit, here's another problem I have to, you know, get through. It's really like, okay, the, the world, the universe is offering me an opportunity to, to up level, to grow, to learn. And so I try to embrace those challenges more and more, but, um, it feels really good to care. <laughs> it feels really good to care. I guess that's how I can answer your yeah. question. Thank Wes you. Carter. Thank you guys Ladies for having and gentlemen. me. Thank you guys for Give having me. Some. Yeah, man. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. Visit Patrick Balsley's practice, saunacounseling.com, Robbie Shaw's practice, eventiderecovery.com, or visit theblanchardinstitute.com.